at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Norfolk. Uh, it's a great joy and privilege for me to be with you this morning, and it's always good for us to remember the bond we share in Jesus Christ, that we are one church. Well, this summer over at Trinity, we preached through the book of Numbers, you know, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, and uh, I know you probably were just reading it this morning, but uh, that'll be good preparation for you if you were. Um, the, the book of Numbers is, is a pretty, pretty misunderstood book, I think, in the church by and large, because, you know, the title makes us think numbers, but that's just a small, small part of it, the actual numbering of Israel. Uh, really, it's a helpful book because, like us, Israel faced this prolonged period of time where they'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but they were wandering. They were pilgrims. They didn't, ha- they didn't know their final home. Well, that's our story as Christians. We've been rescued from sin and death, but here we stand today as pilgrims. We are awaiting still our final home. So Numbers is a really great book. I encourage you to spend some time in it uh, yourselves. We particularly are going to look at a section from Numbers chapter 22 this morning, which is a pretty unusual part of the book. Um, I would have loved to do chapters 22, 23, and 24, but we would have been here a long time if we had done that. So we're just going to focus in on a little section, this little interlude, about two-thirds of the way through the book. And the focus shifts from Israel and the prophet Moses during these three chapters to Moab, a neighbor of Israel, and the prophet Balaam. Yet the Lord remains active even as we move away from his people to look at what's going on in the, in the surrounding world. So as we read this passage, I think we can't help but wonder, is Balaam following the Lord, this prophet we're going to look at? Does he actually worship Yahweh, and is he actually faithful to the one true God? Now, I don't think our... I don't think the book of Numbers particularly answers that question for us as, as uh, explicitly as we would like. But uh, thankfully, the whole of Scripture does speak helpfully into this passage, so that'll be helpful for us. Um, but the reason we're looking at this is Balaam gives us a great picture of one man's struggles to follow the Lord. And it's important that as we look at this passage, we find a way to relate our own struggles with the struggles of Balaam that we see in this passage. Now, the passage confronts us. I'll give you a preparation ahead of time. The passage confronts us with the question, which path are you walking on? Are you walking as a follower of Christ? Or are you simply chasing after your own goals and dreams hoping to get some help from Jesus along the way, kind of as as Ken was talking about before our confession of sin. So which path are you walking on? The beginning of chapter 22 shows us this king, Balak, King Balak of Moab, who is afraid of Israel. So he sends these emissaries to the prophet Balaam, asking him to come and curse Israel. He's going to get paid for this. And initially, Balaam refuses because the Lord tells him no. Don't go, do not curse Israel. But Balak sends more emissaries and more money and more promises of riches. And so, despite the clear instruction of the Lord, he entertains these men a second time and kind of hopes that the Lord might change his mind. And that's where, our, that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to read 
Numbers 22, verses 20 through 38. And it's printed in the insert in your bulletins uh, if you'd like to follow along. The word of the Lord says, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call to you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. The word of the Lord. So my mother figured out I was colorblind when I was five years old because my drawings always had weird color choices always green people and really though it was the way my brother and i used to fight over the green plate uh we had these you know plates with different colors and my brother and i both hated the green plate and my mom said okay nobody hates green that much they must there must be something wrong with the way they see it and so sure enough oh uh, turns out my brother and i were both red green colorblind now, the benefit of this has been I've spent much of my life knowing that I'm colorblind. Some people, you know, don't find this out till much later in life. I've got a friend over at uh, Trinity who didn't find out till he was in the Navy and uh, found out he was actually not qualified to be doing the job that he was doing because colorblindness disqualified him. 
But, you know, at being colorblind, I've had to learn to rely on people for, for help and input. So I've learned that the tasteful red and white striped shirt that I bought for myself one day uh, apparently is really bright, makes me look like a candy striper. My father refuses to actually sit across the table from me if I'm wearing that shirt. He made me move one time. We were out to dinner. Sit next to me so I don't have to look at that shirt the whole time. Uh, I learned just yesterday, in fact, that the, the red sheets that I've been putting on my bed are actually purple. Uh, I was talking to my wife about the red sheets, and she was very confused. She, Do you mean the purple ones? Now, the benefit, like I said, of being colorblind is that I, I've had to learn to, to trust, of knowing that I'm colorblind, is learning to trust what others tell me about the colors of the world because I don't actually see colors correctly. Now, in a similar way, each and every one of us, so not just me here and the few others of you who are colorblind, but every one of us has a problem with the way we see the world because of sin. The way we see the world when we look at the world is not actually how it truly is, but how sin causes us to see the world. Our vision is marred by eyes of greed, by eyes of lust, by eyes of pride, eyes of sin. And the message of the Bible essentially is this. You can't see clearly on your own. You need to trust the Lord. And you need to trust the Lord to change the way you see everything. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but I think that's, that's a way we could, we could sum up, in a, in a sense, what Scripture is trying to tell us, that, that we can't see clearly on our own. Now, our passage deals with this, uh, with this theme of spiritual vision, and it speaks to this struggle that we all share. Notice, it's not until verse 31 in this passage, in this chapter, that Balaam, this great seer, this great oracle of the ancient world, realizes there's something wrong with his vision. Here is, here is the greatest seer that Balak can send to, and we see this dramatic passage of how, his, how he cannot actually see correctly because of his sin. We face a spiritual struggle to see the world through eyes of faith. We're quick to believe in what we control. We want to believe in what is popular. We put our faith in schemes that lead us to profit. That's quite loud. <laughs> but Christians, Christians are called to let the Word of God shape the way we see the world. Now, we don't do this well. This is a struggle for us, just as it is the rest of the world. Everyone struggles with these eyes of sin. But Christians allow the Word of God, we trust the Word of God to shape the way we see the world. It's not something we're capable of, we're of on our own, of course. It requires the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And so the Spirit works in our hearts in this really seemingly mundane and maybe you might even think boring fashion of going again and again to God's Word and letting it shape the way we see the world, letting it change the way we see everything around us. That's, 
That's the most common way that the Spirit is at work to change our vision is through the Word of God which we've been given to see the world correctly. So Balaam, Balaam also receives a word from the Lord. He, he hears God's word speaking directly to him. And Balaam actually went to the Lord three times over the course of chapter 22, three different times about what he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to say. But the first answer that the Lord gave him was actually abundantly clear, and it's not in the text that we read here, but the Lord said, you're not going to go because you're not going to curse these people because they're blessed, they're my people. But Balaam goes again a couple of times to the Lord. Balaam faced this true spiritual blindness that he wanted, he wanted to see a, a way forward where he could increase his renown, increase his reputation, increase his riches. So we're going to look at this passage before us in two parts. First part is Balaam's journey, okay? And in Balaam's journey, we see the danger of our path. But the second part is Balaam's new vision, Balaam's renewed vision, as we see what a course correction to the path of sin and death looks like. So first we're going to look at Balaam's journey and the danger of our path, and then we're going to look at Balaam's new vision and the course correction to our path. So in verse 20, Balaam is told by God, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And so many commentators and theologians have been puzzled over this passage because it seems like God is fickle. It seems like he's just changing his mind. Here he is in verse 20 saying, go with them. And then verse 22, he says, we, we read God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So God tells him to go, but then he's angry because he went. Well, we have to remember the purpose of Balaam's trip. He is this powerful prophet, this powerful diviner, and he has been hired by Moab to curse Israel. At no point does Balak want Balaam to say anything good about Israel. The Lord's instructions have been very clear. What does he say? Do only what I tell you. Only what I tell you is what you're going to say. And he's already told Balaam what he's going to say. So, Balaam didn't initiate conversation with God. God actually comes to Balaam in verse 9 in this chapter. And in verse 12, he, he's, he makes it clear he's not going to curse him. But Balaam thinks God is this fickle pagan, is like any fickle pagan deity, that if you go back enough times, you'll get the answer you want. So, now, he may say a lot of things, Balaam, that is, may say a lot of things that sound holy, that sound wise, that sound like he's listening to God, but if you look closely, he really keeps going back again and again to get what he wants from God, which is permission to go be a part of this trip that's going to make him rich. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15, gives us some insight onto Balaam that is helpful for uh, understanding this passage, where, he's, where it speaks of people who persist in unrighteousness in this way. They have followed the way of Balaam, 
the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So that's 2 Peter 2.15, and that gives us a helpful insight into, uh, into the way the, the apostles understood this incident, that Balaam is one who persists in unrighteousness. Now, the only thing in it for Balaam in going with these messengers is the hope that he's going to get God to change his mind, make a lot of money. And so what we see in verse 20 is actually God giving Balaam over to his greed. Lest we think God wanted Balaam to go and curse Israel, we see immediately that he's angry that Balaam goes and, because God knows the heart. And so he puts his angel in the way as Balaam's adversary. And anyone, which is, I think, all of us probably here, certainly myself, who has entered into sin willfully and deliberately is familiar with this kind of thinking on Balaam's part. Because, okay, maybe you know that the Lord forbids sexual immorality, but you've justified an extra look or an extra touch because you have desires that need to be satisfied. Or perhaps you know that the Lord forbids gossip and slander, but you justify giving in to your passions because you're just trying to help someone. So you want to spread around the news that they need help. And I think Christians are quite adept at rationalizing our sin. Because when we rationalize our sin, we say we're following, we say we're following the Lord, but, but truly we're actually, uh, we're actually trying to get cover for what we want to do and try and find a way, a loophole, or a way to fit that into the Christian life. And it's a dangerous path. And part of the purpose, I believe, of this really comical story, kind of bizarre story of a donkey who, you know, talks and um, intervenes to save Balaam here, is to show us how foolish it is when we rationalize our sin. Now, the donkey can't see, I mean, the donkey can see clearly the danger of Balaam's path, this foolish, I mean, donkeys are famous for being the dumbest animals, right? That's, that's what's significant here. And as the donkey tries to protect Balaam, the donkey sees the danger. But Balaam doesn't, so he beats the donkey. He insults the donkey. He even threatens his donkey. And even when his donkey starts talking to him, he's like, yeah, I wish I had a sword so I could just kill you. Now, <laughs> the poor donkey we realize, is vindicated in the end. You know, the Lord's like, look, this, this donkey's the only reason you're still alive. And this is often what it feels like to try and protect people from the danger of their own sin, isn't it? When a friend confronts me over my sin, what's my reaction? My flesh wants to respond like Balaam. How dare you? What kind of friend are you? But truly, but truly a friend... Uh, actually is like the donkey here, who, who will speak into the life of one who is rationalizing sin, who is, um, who is blind to their own sin, even though that friend oftentimes takes a beating in the process. So what does it say that the donkey could see the danger in the road, but Balaam couldn't? Well, it means that God uses the foolish things of this world and he uses things that look foolish to the world, right? What does it say 
in 1 Corinthians, it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And God's people must learn to embrace the apparent foolishness of the gospel. If everyone is facing a spiritual struggle to view the, uh, to view the world with eyes of faith, everyone is facing that struggle, then those who begin to view the world that way begin to see the world through eyes of faith as God is teaching us to. We're going to look like fools to the world. One of the best illustrations I can think of it, of this is actually The Simpsons. I grew up, uh, you know, in the 90s watching The Simpsons. I haven't watched it in years now, but uh, I remember as I came to faith being really frustrated by the character of Ned Flanders. So if you haven't watched The Simpsons somehow, uh, Ned Flanders is the Christian next-door neighbor of Homer Simpson. And what, what happened, Ned is so friendly, but he's the butt of so many jokes about Christians on the show. He's painfully naive. He's painfully friendly. He, he never understands when Homer doesn't want him around. Uh, and Homer regularly takes advantage of him. But as I grew in faith, I began to realize that this is exactly the kind of foolishness that Christians are called to. And I, don't, I can't speak for later episodes of the show, but I know those first several seasons did a great job of painting Christ, this Christian fool who was, who was this great neighbor, who would return Homer's scorn with love. And, and in his weakness and his foolishness, you know, Flanders actually is a powerful witness to a different way to see the world. But there's no getting around the fact that it looks foolish to, to the rest of us. So what do our lives look like? What path are we on? Now, the path of outright rebellion and irreligion and just disregard for God, I, I think that's represented from, by Balak in this passage, this king who is just like 100% opposed to Israel. He wants to curse him. He wants to kill him. He wants him out. He wants him done. Okay, I think that's fairly easy to see. And maybe you're on that path here today. Uh, if so, I hope you'll consider a different way. But the fact that you've come here at all today probably indicates you're, you're, you're closer to a, to a different path, maybe one of piety and respectability. And, and maybe that piety and that respectability looks dangerously similar to the path of true righteousness. And that's a, that's a danger that all of us face, and that's Balaam's path. And that's what we need to see here today, because Balaam's path is one in which we're saying a lot of things that sound holy, that sound good, and where we, we speak of good deeds and morality, we even, we even pray to the Lord, but the focus of our path is ultimately on ourselves. What Balaam can't see on his path is the danger of his greed. He thinks God's in his back pocket. But in fact, God humbles Balaam and reveals his false piety. Now, this is the very same thing Jesus does to all the religious leaders a thousand years later when he shows up. And we've got all these Pharisees who are telling everybody to be more like us. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And essentially, the Lord could be saying the same thing to Balaam here. In vain do you worship me. I mean, you're giving me lip service like you're coming to me for what I want you to do, but you, you clearly don't care. You clearly want to follow your own path. And the response of those religious leaders in Jesus' day was rejection of Jesus, was persecution and ultimately the murder of Jesus. Now, that's because he was giving them a powerful word that confronted them. And the word of God will always confront us. We, uh, Jack Howell, you know, who's a pastor over, over Trinity with me, he loves to say, if you're liberal, the gospel's going to feel really conservative. And if you're conservative, the gospel's going to feel really liberal because the gospel is always going to challenge our hearts on the things we love more than him, more than the Lord. Because he's calling us to dependence on him, not on ourselves or any of these other things. So let's look at how Balaam responds to this challenge from the Lord, this course correction. Uh, beginning in this confrontation in verse 31, where the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. All right, that's a good, that's a good start by Balaam. Um, posture of worship. And the angel announces that Balaam's way is perverse. Perverse before the Lord. But Balaam recognizes his sin of blindness to the Lord's opposition. Look there in verse 34. He says, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. I mean, this is the amazing point where this great seer, they even have found tablets which they believe speak about the fame of this Balaam, uh, you know, archaeological tablets. He is this famous seer, this great oracle, and yet his vision failed him. So he offers to turn around. But this, again, I think is where we see the indication that the Lord is not so much concerned with Balaam's actions, but with his heart. God wasn't trying to trick Balaam. Back in verse 20, if you disagree with me, I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. But I really don't think the Lord is trying to trick Balaam when he says, rise and go. He repeats that command here in verse 35. Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. You see, the issue for Balaam and for us is that obedience to the Lord extends beyond our actions to the very words we speak and to the very thoughts and loves of our hearts. And so if we try to obey without a change of heart, we end up trying to manipulate God's commands for our own gain. So that's, you know, for our reputation, for our prosperity, whatever it may be, for our fitness. But God's making clear to Balaam that his word, not Balaam's own, own devices or any of his pagan divination are going to guide this process here for him. So verse 36 we finally, in this passage, in this part of the narrative, see this King Balak. Uh, and uh, Balak shows up, and <laughs> Balak is like so anxious to get Balaam here, he meets him on the extremity of the border. So, you know, I mean, you can, you can picture like President Barack Obama like going to the airport to meet the guy that he's, that he's bringing in. I mean, he's, de- he's like, what took you so long? Why is it, why are you... I'm so glad you're here, but come on. And, uh, you know, commentaries think it probably took about four months from the start of Balak trying to get this guy, send emissaries, probably about four months 
uh, based on the distances and the having to send a couple different groups. So meanwhile, he's had Israel encamped, like right on his doorstep, maybe even in his territory. And Balaam, Balaam sees that he's upset, but he's like, look, 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 am I not able to honor you? And he cuts to the heart of what this is all about. So don't miss this. Balaam wants his own glory, and Balak knows it. So the king, the king has this alluring message of God's enemies. King Balak says, am I not able to honor you? And it's the message of Satan himself. I can give you what you really want. I can give you what you really want. Now, what we'd love to see Balaam say here is like, you know, no, I'm going to bless Israel. Uh, It's not quite that firm, though. He says, uh, look, behold, I've come to you, verse 38. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. That's right. That's right. That's good. But he actually knows what word God's going to put in his mouth because God told him way back earlier in the chapter, in, you know, in chapters 9 through 12, he's, in verses 9 through 12, he's saying, the Lord said, you're going to bless them. And, and Balak continues here, I think, to hold out hope that he's going to be able to, to profit from this somehow. And, and that actually does um, bear itself out in chapters 23 and 24. Uh, as uh, Balaam, sorry, I said Balak before. It's very confusing, those two names. But Balaam will go on to bless Israel several times. Balak gets really upset about this, as you can imagine, because he's gone to a lot of trouble to get Balaam there. And again and again, Balaam realizes, no, this is, this is what the Lord is going to do. And so he tries several different methods, but the Lord always speaks blessing through him. Because what we see again and again through Scripture is that the Lord is capable of using anyone and everyone for his purposes. And, and here, an agent intended for destruction, the Lord is going to take and transform and use for the blessing of his people, reluctantly or not. But this is, uh, I think, an instance of Balaam's um, selective memory. Yeah, I can only speak what the Lord tells me. But he's, when, when the Hebrew narrative, in Hebrew narrative, when they leave an, a detail out, it's usually significant. And he's left out this detail from earlier in the chapter that it's going to be words of blessing. So this is the blinding power of sin continuing to be at work. And it's why Balaam isn't held up as this great pagan prophet who comes to the people of God and is transformed um, and brought into the community of faith. Instead, he remains fully devoted to himself even after being an instrument of the Lord. And, it's, and he remains on the path of spiritual blindness. He gets this, uh, this opportunity of this great course correction, but ultimately he refuses to, to follow on that path because it's a difficult path. There's an article this summer, uh, which uh, you may have seen. It, it was pretty popular on uh, old Facebook, but it was called Tinder and the Dating Apocalypse. Now, if you don't know about Tinder, it's this dating app where you get all these pictures of people that you might want to date. You swipe one direction. I can't remember if it's right for good and left for bad, but basically you just you swipe, and uh, so I think it's swipe right means good. And that's, almost, that's actually kind of become, uh, if you didn't know, uh, kind of part of the lexicon of today's uh, vocabulary. You know, if something's good, you can say swipe right. So there's a tip for you, you know. That's what the kids are saying. Uh, but here's, here's what this, uh, here's, 
Here, here, this, this author of this article talked to a bunch of uh, mainly 20-somethings who are using this uh, in, in cities and stuff where there's a big pool of people. And uh, it's really fascinating. So I'm, I want to read just an excerpt from the article. It said, they all say they don't want to be in relationships. I don't want one, says Nick. I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. You can't be selfish in a relationship, Brian says. It feels good just to do what I want. I ask them if it ever feels like they lack a deeper connection with someone. There's a small silence. After a moment, John says, I think at some point it does. But that's assuming that's something that I want, which I don't, Nick says, a trifle annoyed. Does that mean that my life is lacking something? I'm perfectly happy. I have a good time. I go to work. I'm busy. And when I'm not, I go out with my friends. Or you meet someone on Tinder, offers John. Exactly, Nick says. Tinder is fast and easy. Boom, 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 swipe. Now, there's a lot there, but I think, <laughs> I think at some level we all resonate actually with, with what these guys are saying in, in this article in that we want relationships on our terms. Now, somewhat, some of the shallowness of what they're saying is, is exposed and held into the light, and, uh, but, but we're, we're really no different. When we see ourselves as the focal point of life, then anything that limits or hinders that is, is just inconvenient. And for these guys in this article, it's a, it's a real relationship instead of just a hookup. But for us, maybe it's a real relationship with the Lord instead of a little religious lip service. The Lord is revealing something of himself to the nations in this Balaam saga. He's made Israel, and he's made Israel his people, and he's going to bless them, but relationship with him will be found in the means of worship he gives to his people. And so if you align against God's people, you actually align against him. Now, interestingly, I think this story points us forward, points us forward to the New Testament, um, to a man, a very religious man, who came after God's people, just as Balaam and Balak tried to do here. And that's the Pharisee named Saul. Now, in the New Testament, Saul is recorded as this great persecutor of the early church who thought he was following the Lord. But as he was traveling to Damascus to root out followers of Christ, the Lord himself confronted him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And just as the Lord revealed himself to the pagan prophet Balaam, Jesus revealed himself to Saul and transformed him from an agent of destruction to an agent of blessing. But there's something really important that's different about Saul's story than Balaam's because Saul returns to God's word and found rather than pointing to a life of duty and obedience, it pointed to his need for a savior. When he was on this path of religious path of moral perfection, he was blind his need for Jesus. But when he was confronted by Jesus, when he was shown his sinfulness, his eyes were temporarily blinded. And his sight was renewed when they were, when the scales fell off. And he no longer saw himself as center of the world. Instead, he saw Jesus at the center. And unlike Balaam, who has this great opportunity to bear witness and will reluctantly bear witness to the Gentiles of, of God's plans, Paul goes out as apostle to the Gentiles, telling the whole world that the focal point of God's people is not ourselves, but on Jesus. And this is foolishness to the world. 
This is a foolish message, that, and Paul writes that and recognizes that, as we, as we saw earlier. But just as the angel stood before Balaam, and Jesus stood before Saul, the word of the Lord stands before each and every one of us, each and every day. Jesus confronts us in his word with a hard truth, that our vision is really bad. Our sin is keeping us from seeing him and all his beauty and all his glory, and it's keeping us from seeing the world as he made it. And the solution to our faulty vision cannot be found in ourselves. We have to trust someone who sees correctly. Just as the donkey couldn't steer Balaam to safety and had to lay down and suffer Balaam's wrath, so too Jesus had to lay down his life for us to save us from sin, to save us from our path. And the donkey doesn't die, right? But Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross to correct our vision, that we might always know to look to him, to look to his work on the cross as that which restores our vision, as that which restores our sight. And so do not despair. Whatever path you are on, do not despair this morning, but instead let us fix our eyes upon Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we struggle to see the world as you have made it. Instead, we we see ourselves as central and we see other people, Uh, your creation, you, yourself, as things that can be manipulated for our own gain. Lord, would you correct our vision? Would you show us our blindness? Would you give us hope and life in Jesus alone, we pray. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.